Part sixty four of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume One, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part sixty four. Mary Bateman, commonly called the Yorkshire Witch, executed for murder. Part one. The insidious arts practised by this woman rendered her a pest to the neighbourhood in which she resided, and she richly deserved that fate which eventually befell her. She was indicted at York on the 18th of March, 1809, for the willful murder of Rebecca Perigo of Bramley, in the same county, in the month of May in the previous year. The examination of the witnesses, who were called to support the case for the prosecution, showed that Mrs. Bateman resided at Leeds, and was well known at that place, as well as in the surrounding districts, as a witch, in which capacity she had been frequently employed to work cures of evil wishes, and all the other customary imaginary illnesses to which the credulous lower orders at that time supposed themselves liable. Her name had become much celebrated in the neighbourhood for her successes in the arts of divining and witchcraft, and it may be readily concluded that her efforts in her own behalf were no less profitable. In the spring of 1806, Mrs. Perigo, who lived with her husband at Bramley, a village at a short distance from Leeds, was seized with a flacking, or fluttering in her breast, whenever she lay down, and applying to a quack doctor of the place, he assured her that it was beyond his cure, for that an evil wish had been laid upon her, and that the arts of sorcery must be resorted to in order to effect her relief. While in this dilemma she was visited by her niece, a girl named Stead, who at that time filled a situation as a household servant at Leeds, and who had taken advantage of the Whitsuntide holidays to go round to see her friends. Stead expressed her sorrow to find her aunt in so terrible a situation, and recommended an immediate appeal to the prisoner, whose powers she described as fully equal, to get rid of any affection of the kind, whether produced by mortal or diabolical charms. An application was at once determined on her, and Stead was employed to broach the subject to the diviner. She, in consequence, paid the prisoner a visit at her house in Black Dog Yard, near the bank at Leeds, and having acquainted her with the nature of the malady by which her aunt was affected, was informed by her that she knew a lady who lived at Scarborough, and that if a flannel petticoat or some article of dress which was worn next the skin of the patient was sent to her, she would at once communicate with her upon the subject. On the following Tuesday, William Perigo, the husband of the deceased, proceeded to her house, and having handed over his wife's flannel petticoat, the prisoner said that she would write to Miss Blythe, who was the lady to whom she had alluded, at Scarborough by the same night's post, and that an answer would doubtless be returned by that day week, when he was to call again. On the day mentioned, Perigo was true to his appointment, and the prisoner produced to him a letter, saying that it had arrived from Miss Blythe, and that it contained directions as to what was to be done. After a great deal of circumlocution and mystery, the letter was opened, and was read by the prisoner, and it was found that it contained an order that Mary Bateman should go to Perigo's house at Bramley, and should take with her four guinea notes, which were enclosed, and that she should sew them into the four corners of the bed, in which the diseased woman slept, where they were to remain for eighteen months, that Perigo was to give her four other notes of like value to be returned to Scarborough, 
and that unless all these directions were strictly attended to, the charm would be useless and would not work. On the 4th of August the prisoner went over to Bramley, and having shown the four notes, proceeded apparently to sew them up in silken bags, which she delivered over to Mrs. Perigo to be placed in the bed. The four notes desired to be returned were then handed to her by Perigo, and she retired, directing her dupes frequently to send to her house, as letters might be expected from Miss Blythe. In about a fortnight another letter was produced, and it contained directions that two pieces of iron in the form of horseshoes should be nailed up at Perigo's door by the prisoner, but that the nails should not be driven in with a hammer, but with the back of a pair of pincers, and that the pincers were to be sent to Scarborough, to remain in the custody of Miss Blythe for the eighteen months already mentioned in the charm. The prisoner accordingly again visited Bramley, and having nailed up the horseshoes, received and carried off the pincers. In October the following letter was received by Perigo, bearing the signature of the supposed Miss Blythe. "'My dear friend, you must go down to Mary Bateman's at Leeds on Tuesday next, and carry two guinea notes with you, and give her them, and she will give you other two that I have sent to her from Scarborough, and you must buy me a small cheese about six or eight pound weight, and it must be of your buying, for it is for a particular use, and it is to be carried down to Mary Bateman's, and she will send it to me by the coach. This letter is to be burned when you have done reading it. From this time to the month of March 1807, a great number of letters were received, demanding the transmission of various articles to Miss Blythe, through the medium of the prisoner, the whole of which were to be preserved by her until the expiration of the eighteen months, and in the course of the same period, money to the amount of near seventy pounds was paid over. Perigo, upon each occasion of payment, receiving silk bags containing what were pretended to be coins or notes of corresponding value, which were to be sewn up in the bed as before. In March 1807 the following letter arrived. My dear friends, I will be obliged to you if you will let me have half a dozen of your china, three silver spoons, half a pound of tea, two pounds of loaf sugar, and a tea canister to put the tea in, or else it will not do. I durst not drink out of my own china. You must burn this with a candle. The china, etc., not having been sent, in the month of April, Miss Blythe wrote as follows. My dear friends, I will be obliged to you if you will buy me a camp bedstead, bed and bedding, a blanket, a pair of sheets, and a long bolster must come from your house. You need not buy the best feathers, common ones will do. I have laid on the floor for three nights, and I cannot lay on my own bed, owing to the planets being so bad concerning your wife, and I must have one of your buying, or it will not do. You must bring down the china, the sugar, the caddy, the three silver spoons, and the tea, at the same time when you buy the bed, and pack them up all together. My brother's boat will be up in a day or two, and I will order my brother's boatman to call for them, all at Mary Bateman's and you must give Mary Bateman one shilling for the boatman, and I will place it to your account. Your wife must burn this as soon as it is read, or it will not do. This had the desired effect, and the prisoner, having called upon the Perigos, she accompanied them to the shops of a Mr. Dobbin, and a Mr. Musgrave, at Leeds, to purchase the various articles named, which were eventually bought at a cost of sixteen pounds, and sent to Mr. Sutton's at the Lion and Lamb Inn, Kirkgate, there to await the arrival of the supposed messenger. At the end of April the following letter arrived. My dear friends, 
I am sorry to tell you you will take an illness in the month of May next, one or both of you, but I think both, but the works of God must have its course. You will escape the chambers of the grave, though you seem to be dead, yet you will live. Your wife must take half a pound of honey down from Bramley to Mary Bateman's at Leeds, and it must remain there till you go down yourself, and she will put in such like stuff as I have sent from Scarborough to her, and she will put it in when you come down, and see her yourself, or it will not do. You must eat pudding for six days, and you must put in such stuff like as I have sent to Mary Bateman from Scarborough, and she will give your wife it. But you must not begin to eat of this pudding, while I let you know. If ever you find yourself sickly at any time, you must take each of you a teaspoonful of this honey. I will remit twenty pounds to you on the twentieth day of May, and it will pay a little, of what you owe. You must bring this down to Mary Bateman's, and burn it at her house, when you come down next time. The instructions contained in this letter were complied with, and the prisoner, having first mixed a white powder in the honey, handed over six others of the same colour and description to Mrs. Perigo, saying that they must be used in the precise manner mentioned upon them, or they would all be killed. On the 5th of May another letter arrived, in the following terms. My dear friends, you must begin to eat pudding on the 11th of May, and you must put one of the powders in every day, as they are marked, for six days, and you must see it put in yourself every day, or else it will not do. If you find yourself sickly at any time, you must not have no doctor, for it will not do, and you must not let the boy that used to eat with you eat of that pudding for six days, and you must make only just as much as you can eat for yourselves, if there is any left, it will not do. You must keep the door fast, as much as possible, or you will be overcome by some enemy. Now think on, and take my directions, or else it will kill us all. About 25th of May I will come to Leeds, and send for your wife to Mary Bateman's. Your wife will take me by the hand and say, God bless you that I ever found you out. It has pleased God to send me into the world that I might destroy the works of darkness. I call them the works of darkness, because they are dark to you. Now mind what I say, whatever you do. This letter must be burned in straw on the hearth by your wife. The absurd credulity of Mr. and Mrs. Perigo even yet favoured the horrid designs of the prisoner, and in obedience to the directions which they received they began to eat the puddings on the day named. For five days they had no particular flavour, but on the sixth powder being mixed, the pudding was found so nauseous that the former could only eat one or two mouthfuls, while his wife managed to swallow three or four. They were both directly seized with violent vomiting, and Mrs. Perigo, whose faith appears to have been greater than that of her husband, at once had recourse to the honey. Their sickness continued during the whole day, but although Mrs. Perigo suffered the most intense torments, she positively refused to hear of a doctor's being sent for, lest, as she said, the charm should be broken, by Miss Blythe's directions being opposed. The recovery of the husband from the illness, by which he was affected, slowly progressed, but the wife, who persisted in eating the honey, continued daily to lose strength, and at length expired on the 24th of May, her last words being a request to her husband not to be rash with Mary Bateman, but to await the coming of the appointed time. Mr. Chorley, a surgeon was subsequently called in to see her body, 
but although he expressed his firm belief that the death of the deceased was caused by her having taken poison, and although that impression was confirmed by the circumstance of a cat dying immediately after it had eaten some of the pudding, no further steps were taken to ascertain the real cause of death, and Perigo even subsequently continued in communication with the prisoner. Upon his informing her of the death of his wife, she at once declared that it was attributable to her having eaten all the honey at once, and then, in the beginning of June, he received the following letter from Miss Blythe. "'My dear friend, I am sorry to tell you that your wife should touch of those things which I ordered her not, and, for that reason, it has caused her death. It had likened to have it killed me at Scarborough, and Mary Bateman at Leeds, and you and all, and for this reason she will rise from the grave.' she will stroke your face with her right hand, and you will lose the use of one side. But I will pray for you. I would not have you to go to no doctor, for it will not do. I would have you to eat and drink what you like, and you will be better. Now, my dear friend, take my directions. Do, and it will be better for you. Pray God bless you. Amen. Amen. You must burn this letter immediately after it is read." Letters were also subsequently received by him purporting to be from the same person, in which new demands for clothing, coals, and other articles were made, but at length, in the month of October 1808, two years having elapsed since the commencement of the charm, he thought that the time had fully arrived when, if any good effects were to be produced from it, they would have been apparent, and that, therefore, he was entitled to look for his money in the bed. He, in consequence, commenced a search for the little silk bags, in which his notes and money had been, as he supposed, sewn up. But although the bags, indeed, were in precisely the same positions in which they had been placed by his deceased wife, by some unaccountable conjuration, the notes and gold had turned to rotten cabbage leaves and bad farthings. The darkness, by which the truth had been so long obscured, now passed away, and having communicated with the prisoner by a stratagem, meeting her under pretence of receiving from her a bottle of medicine, which was to cure him from the effects of the puddings which still remained, he caused her to be apprehended. Upon her house being searched, nearly all the property sent to the supposed Miss Blythe was found in her possession, and a bottle containing a liquid mixed with two powders, one of which proved to be oatmeal and the other arsenic, was taken from her pocket when she was taken into custody. The rest of the evidence against the prisoner went to show that there was no such person as Miss Blythe living at Scarborough, and that all the letters which had been received by Perigo were in her own handwriting, and had been sent by her to Scarborough to be transmitted back again. An attempt was also proved to have been made by her to purchase some arsenic at the shop of a Mr. Clough, in Kirkgate, in the month of April 1807. But the most important testimony was that of Mr. Chorley, the surgeon, who distinctly proved that he had analysed what remained of the pudding, and of the contents of the honey-pot, and that he had found them both to contain a deadly poison, called corrosive sublimative mercury, and the symptoms exhibited by the deceased and her husband were such as would have arisen from the administration of such a drug. The prisoner's defence consisted of a simple denial of the charge, and the learned judge then proceeded to address the jury. Having stated the nature of the allegations made in the indictment, he said that in order to come to a conclusion as to the guilt of the prisoner, it was necessary that three points should be clearly made out. First, that the deceased died of poison. Second, that the poison was administered by the contrivance and knowledge of the prisoner. And third, 
that it was so done for the purpose of occasioning the death of the deceased. A large body of evidence had been laid before them to prove that the prisoner had engaged in schemes of fraud against the deceased and her husband, which was proved not merely by the evidence of William Perigo, but by the testimony of other witnesses, and the inference the prosecutors drew from this fraud was the existence of a powerful motive or temptation to commit a still greater crime, for the purpose of escaping the shame and punishment which must have attended the detection of the fraud, a fraud so gross that it excited his surprise that any individual in that age and nation should be the dupe of it. But the jury should not go beyond this inference, and presume that because the prisoner had been guilty of fraud, she was of course likely to have committed the crime of murder, that if proved must be shown by other evidence. His lordship then proceeded to recapitulate the whole of the evidence, as detailed in the preceding pages, and concluded with the following observations. It is impossible not to be struck with wonder at the extraordinary credulity of William Perigo, which neither the loss of his property, the death of his wife, and his own severe sufferings could dispel, and it was not until the month of October, in the following year, that he ventured to open his hid treasure, and found there what every one in court must have anticipated that he would find, not a single vestige of his property, and his evidence is laid before the jury with the observation which arises from this uncommon want of judgment. His memory, however, appears to be very retentive, and his evidence is confirmed, and that in different parts of the narrative by other witnesses, and many parts of the case do not rest upon his evidence at all. The illness and peculiar symptoms which preceded the death of his wife, his own severe sickness, and a variety of other circumstances attending the experiments made upon the pudding, were proved by separate and independent testimony. And it is most strange that, in a case of so much suspicion as it appeared to have excited at the time, the interment of the body should have taken place without any inquiry as to the cause of death, an inquiry which then would have been much less difficult, though the fact of the deceased having died of poison is now well established. The main question is, did the prisoner contrive the means to induce the deceased to take it? If she did so contrive the means, the intent could only be to destroy. Poison so deadly could not be administered with any other view. The jury will lay all the facts and circumstances together, and, if they feel them, press so strongly against the prisoner as to induce a conviction of the prisoner's having procured the deceased to take poison with an intent to occasion her death, they will find her guilty. If they do not think the evidence conclusive, they will, in that case, find the prisoner not guilty. End of part 64